Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's my pleasure this evening to introduce our, uh, the Leverhulme Visiting Professor with the Gender Institute in the IR Department, uh, Professor V. Spike Peterson uh, from the University of Arizona, Professor of Political Science at the University of Arizona. I mean, Spike's uh, contributed to what I think some people would see as a number of different discourses, but I suspect she sees them as all linked together, and quite rightly so. Gender studies, feminism, human rights, IPE. Uh, she's written books and articles in considerable quantity on all these areas. Um, her most recent book is a critical rewriting of global political economy. Uh, earlier than that, she produced uh, what is still one of the two or three best textbooks on gender issues with Anne Runyon, Global Gender Issues, and a very important collection, Gendered States, Feminist Revisions of IR Theory. Uh, she's also published, if you look at her website, a very large number of articles and book chapters, rather irritatingly many, if you don't mind me saying so, uh, for the rest of us, and including some quite classics. I mean, there's, there's one that comes to me, the Who's Right? A critique of the givens in human rights discourse, which is on every reading list on human rights. So in fact, it's probably not true, but it ought to be on every reading list in, on human rights. It's a, it's a brilliant paper in very early 1990, uh, which in IR and gender issue terms is pretty uh, uh, early. It's a personal pleasure for me to introduce Spike. I've known her for many years. Uh, conferences in uh, the US, obviously, in Bristol, I seem to recall, in Japan and various others. Uh, and, and Spike, I think uh, there's two things that I take away from this. One is tremendous passion in her work. She really believes in what she's talking about. She's, she's passionate in conversation about everything. I mean, I've had some really good rows with Spike over the years. Very satisfying nature. She's also got an enormous joie de vivre. Uh, uh, love of life in, the, in a big way and that's one of the reasons why you can have rows with Spike and afterwards it's okay I think or at least I hope it's okay she's, she's not going to attack me for half an hour and prove that it isn't anyway uh, no more of me I'd now like to introduce Spike Peterson to give tonight's Leverhulme lecture Informalization and Global Political Economy The Elephant in the Room Spike I would like to turn this mic off. Turn this off. Yeah. Whoops, those, those are the lights. We don't want to do that. Oh, dear. Okay. I don't think it'll be, oh, I guess I should turn it full on. Pardon me. I just want to turn the mic off. So it's, um, I appreciate the honor bestowed upon me by Chris and others who have invited me here to be with you. Some of you may know this is my second uh, visit to London School of Economics, and this is actually the third in a series of four talks that um, I'll be giving. 
So I am hoping there's some uh, memory here of other talks or some familiarity with the basic background of global political economy, international relations issues. I will just briefly refer to some of that to try to get us on the same page and hope that it's sufficient. And of course, we can clarify in Q&A. I have, as Chris indicated, worked in a variety of areas of international relations and generally from a critical and most often a feminist and also a post-structuralist or post-modernist orientation. Is there a problem in the sound? Okay, then I will just use the mic. Sorry, thank you for signaling. As Chris indicated, my most recent book is called A Critical Rewriting of Global Political Economy. And in that, I attempt to integrate what I identify as political economy, a productive economy, I'm sorry, reproductive economies and virtual economies. I understand economies in that usage in a Foucauldian sense as systemic sites through and across which power operates. These aren't intentionally um, distinguished or separate economies, but sites of power that are just named in that fashion in order to provide an organizing mechanism for writing a rather lengthy book. The reproductive economy is what is less familiar to a lot of us because it's typically the kind of work that women do that is considered socially necessary and has a great deal to do with tonight's topic on informalization, but doesn't usually appear in mainstream economic accounts. The productive economy is the one we do hear about of formal market transactions. It's the kind of things we get reported in the news and that refer to regulated activities, um, how people work, how they get paid, what the prospects are for employment, labor market relations, etc. The virtual economy, I won't mention much this evening. It's been already talked about. It's really about financial matters, symbolic um, indicators of economic production and value, and especially the informational economy that has emerged, primarily because of the different aspects, different modes of production, hello, that have um, been shifted through information and communication technologies, just recognizing people I know. Um, So some quick review of what do I mean by global political economy. I'm referring primarily to last several decades of global political economy in the sense of economic restructuring according to neoliberal principles. And those are more generally deregulation, trying to eliminate rigidities of the market, um, liberalization, privatization, and export-oriented development policies. These, of course, overlap and interact and have produced a shift, a major shift, a restructuring that was intentional and it has occurred. And that restructuring is about what is produced, how it is produced, different production processes and activities and practices, where things are produced, think of the global assembly line instead of uh, centralized factories, who is doing what parts of that production and how they are compensated, paid for, whether or not they were valorized or uh, marginalized in those processes. So the effects on work and workers as a result of this massive restructuring are, and these again are generalizations that are um, problematic as generalizations, but just to identify major trends. 
This restructuring tends to favor capital at the expense of labor. Uh, we see an erosion of wages and workers' power and the protection of workers through union organizing, bargaining positions, the, so to speak, family wage, the decline in permanent employment with benefits, uh, but more often what is cast generally as flexibilization where jobs, when they are available, are more often temporary, uh, part-time, lack the kind of protective regulatory security mechanisms that, at least in advanced industrialized countries, some workers have been able to take for granted. So one result is a declining middle, and what most would agree are increasing differences, um, polarization, if you will, between an elite at the top, and a very large majority of the world's workers and individuals who do not benefit or benefit to a much less extent than those elites at the top who are in some ways able to take advantage of these changes. Most people are subject to the effects of the changes. In addition to the shift in worker and employment opportunities, there's a decrease in public spending for welfare, um, government support, for training, for education, for compensation, in part because neoliberal policies um, try to restrict that form of spending. So just as many people need more support because they face deteriorating economic conditions, the state is not providing that support, but actually decreasing the level of um, revenue provided for public welfare spending programs. Mm-hmm. What I want to um, focus on is this very large picture that goes on in regard to the global political economy. My topic this evening is very much a focus on informalization, which is uh, a theme that I've become quite, um, as Chris noted, passionate about. Not the only one I'm passionate about, but my current one. So what do I mean by informalization? Basically, all of those activities that may or may not be construed as work, some people construe it as work, other people do not. Everything about informalization is controversial. Because depending on where you sit or stand, how you want to think about things, your ideological preferences, your disciplinary training, etc., you may have um, one or another um, understanding of what informal economy, informal activities should constitute, what they're, whether they should be encouraged or not. My definition is basically a very general one that encompasses social and reproductive labor, domestic labor, housework, maintaining care for children and other dependents, and going all the way from that kind of household domestic caring labor, ostensibly done for love or obligation or duty, reciprocal um, relations of reciprocity, where cash isn't necessarily expected and regulatory authorities are not expected to show up. Uh, We don't expect the state to come and ask us how well we're caring for our grandmother in the home. And that the informal activities I want to talk about extend from that kind of domestic arena of socially reproductive nature to those that are more familiar in the press in regard to being more obviously sensational, the illicit activities, black market, underground economy, shadow economy, um, work that's done off the books, under the table, but also includes things in the middle that are kind of ambiguously legal, illegal, they kind of avoid regulation as opposed to clearly um, at either pole of the continuum. That would be street vending, babysitting, 
casual labor that's done with neighbors or for neighbors or on a personal basis that um, does avoid taxation. So general um, definition of informalization activities outside of the formal economy, ranging from caretaking, subsistence, neighborhood projects, voluntary projects, to street vending, um, drug traffic, sex work, arms trades, international trafficking in people and bodies and other interestingly commodified um, items. I would like to be able to persuade you or initiate an argument this evening in regard to the importance of informalization for those of us engaged in studies of international relations, of global political economy, of security studies, because these are related to conflict issues as well. I think it's a really useful, productive, illuminating window on a variety of key issues in international relations. And I'll just at this point briefly suggest why I think that is that informalization affords a key window on these activities. One is it's a crucial aspect of global political economy. I'm not the only one who argues that informal activities constitute the underbelly, the underpinning, the real stuff that keeps the rest of the edifice going. So that in many ways, globalization under neoliberal restructuring the economic productive economy is dependent on what happens in the informal economy, even though we don't often hear about it. So there's the global political economy issues that informalization really helps us to understand. Social reproduction, household income generating strategies become important, and migration surfaces as a major element if we start to look through a lens on informalization. The second way in which I think informalization is a really useful window, really illuminates a great deal, the first being global political economy in a conventional sense, if you will. The second are hierarchies, issues of both social justice, equity, and also analytical issues in regard to how do we understand the intersection of hierarchical relationships, gender, race, class, national, economic differences. So I want to make a case for understanding the significance of informalization to reveal processes of the crisis of social reproduction that the planet, if you will, confronts, and a crisis of structural violence as manifested as reference in regard to increasing inequalities between people and groups and the conflictual um, potential of um, exacerbating those inequalities. So, in effect, the talk will... um, draw on earlier material, I'll uh, examine informalization, um, explain, I hope, why I've called it the elephant in the room, what does that refer to, why is it invisible, Mm -hmm. Um, why it does matter both empirically, analytically, and politically, and what we learn when we look at informalization and what we might do, i.e., in some sense, trying to respond to that um, ever-difficult question of what is to be done. So the elephant in the room, why is informalization so invisible if I have suggested correctly that that's really important? Um, I think that one way to tackle an answer to that question is to consider what enables us to see some things and not others. We can't see everything all at once. Basically, we're always engaged in looking at things through certain filters or lenses that illuminate some aspects of reality and put others in darkness. So the blinders, I think, at work that make it 
make us unaware of or unwilling to acknowledge and address the issue of the elephant in the room, as in informalization, include the first and most obvious, a disciplinary bias that mainstream economics tends to consider its subject matter as that of the productive economy, formal market relations, negotiated contracts, where people work, employment figures, how things are circulated, exchanged, consumed. So they are not paying attention, and in spite of the attempts by any number of critical and feminist interventions, they do not um, intend apparently to pay much attention to the social reproductive sphere, to domestic labor, to household and other activities. So that's one bias that um, economics has um, neglected the reproductive economy and socially necessary labor. Another bias is the epistemological and methodological orientations that scholars and practitioners and policymakers bring to the study of what we call economics or political economy, which tend to have, if you will, positivist, empiricist, rationalist, objectivist, productivist, or economistic um, commitments. Basically, the lens they're using is saying, we will count what we can count. If we can count it, if we can objectify it, if we can have objective indicators of what the costs are, what the commodities are, where they're going, what the trade relationships are, then it becomes something we can um, analyze and digest. More subjective factors, the desires, the preferences, why people care about certain things, why they are willing to sacrifice as much as they do to have or to try to get certain things, how people experience their personal identities, their roles and divisions of labor and hierarchical situations and work um, situations as well. Those are off the, they're under the radar. They're not in the visible aspect of these um, epistemological, epistemological commitments. Another bias is Eurocentrism or modernist, uh, which many of us would argue is almost invariably racially informed, that economics has tended to look at industrialized countries, especially of the core, and ignored or neglected the yet to be industrialized, assuming that they're going to be, but non-industrialized countries in the periphery, and issues that actually impact the poorest. Rather, their attention has been elsewhere on European um, economies with modernist um, assumptions about the West will follow, the rest will follow the West, uh, that what European um, industrialization has involved or Western industrialization is what others will invariably wish to mimic, uh, and it's just a matter of time before they achieve it as well. Yet another bias that prevents us from seeing the elephant in the room is that both liberal and Marxist economists expected informal activities to decline. The understanding from both schools of thought, so surprising the overlap between them, is that as industrialization prevailed as it inevitably would in the linear assumption of progression, more and more work would be brought under regulation, contracts, etc., recorded, into the attention of the state, and very little would remain in the informal area. They both also tend to neglect, disregard, dismiss the value, the importance, the power, the economic significance of reproductive activities and socially necessary labor. 
Finally, there's a general filter at work that overlaps with many of these other filters of masculinism, of taking seriously primarily what men do and ignoring what women do, assuming that the work that women do, even when it's done by men, but women's work, feminized work, can't be all that important, either because it's assumed to be a natural division of labor, so there's no point contesting it. It's not political because it's natural. People are doing that work in the home because out of love or voluntary activities because they want to, not because they have to. So those activities, again, drop out of sight from uh, mainstream analysis. And in general, and historically over a long period of time, the productive economy or the formal market activities have displaced a consideration of the power and significance of reproductive activities. So in general... The elephant remains invisible because the people in the room are thinking through a top-down lens that um, prevents them from paying attention to what's happening closer to the floor. In reality, though, and increasingly recognized by even orthodox mainstream economists, is the informal economy, informal activities constitute an enormous elephant in the room. And it is not only in developing countries where it was understood that informal activities would constitute a larger portion of economic behavior because they hadn't industrialized sufficiently yet, yeah. But it's not only developing countries where informal activities are very significant, constituting often 75% of all the value produced, but also they're increasing in advanced industrialized countries. Nobody expected that. This was really um, a challenge to conventional economic theorizing. And there are many, a number of responses to, the, to this um, development. I want to consider then why informalization matters. I've claimed it's large, it's huge, it's an elephant we ought to be paying attention to even though we are not. So why? How, what, what is it? about informalization that matters. And I'll do this by reference to mattering in terms of empirical indicators, measures, in terms of analytical questions or issues, and in terms of political um, and concrete uh, manifestations in regard to the practices that we consider of political nature as in power laden, not necessarily governmental. Mm-hmm. So empirically, why does this study of informalization matter empirically? First and foremost, the size of it, because it's a very big elephant. Yeah. How big? Uh, it depends on what definition you want to adopt, how much you include. Just the underground economy, the illicit trafficking, there are people who estimate that the drug trafficking, the drug dealers in, on the planet exceeds the um, economic measures for oil. Okay. That there are ways in which the... Um, resources that are depleted and the violence that is implicit in a lot of black market underground economies um, and activities are what dominates some people's uh, attention to informalization. So even the conservative, if you will, or moderate estimates from those who are looking primarily at the underground or shadow or black market economy by The Economist magazine in 1999 was that this was approximately $9 trillion dollars. This is already 1999. The numbers would have gotten much larger by now. In 1999, that was the equivalent of a quarter of global production. 
That's just not insignificant. That doesn't include any of the the informal activity in regard to socially necessary labor, domestic, maid work, domestic work, um, taking care of children, housekeeping, etc., that I and others um, do include in the definition of informal activities. Including that would, by many estimates, add a third to a fourth of global production. It's hard to know what the accurate figures would be because, by definition, these are activities that are not recorded or regulated, that people are trying to avoid being noticed. So research in this area is challenging in that particular way. Curiously, as a little aside, it's gotten easier because one of the ways in which informal activities have been noticed is because of illicit activities that are funding conflicts and terrorism. So people who didn't used to care about the informal because they thought it only had to do with the third world or global south now care about them because it seems to be impacting, have an impact on funding for um, uh, first world, if you will, the the northern um, militarism. Okay, so we have a very large um, elephant in the room, especially if we include all the activities that I think it's important to include in the definition of informalization. The next aspect of that is empirically why it matters is who is doing this work. As I suggested earlier, Restructuring has tended as a generalization that is complicated by particular locations, particular national economies, etc. Um, but as a generalization, increasing income inequalities both within nations and between nations. Yeah. So we have this small elite and a growing gap, declining middle, and a very large bottom that is subject to um, economic conditions, not necessarily empowered to affect those conditions. The people doing informal work are primarily those who are marginalized populations. Specifically, the majority of informal workers are women, in part because they're doing the work in the domestic sphere. They've been assigned that. That's part of the division of labor, the stereotypes of what women are to do, and that operates pretty much worldwide, even though it's also changing in various places. And because under conditions of economic deterioration, it's women who are assigned the responsibility to keep the family together, to maintain the household, especially when men lose their capacity to be income earners, which is one of the um, general patterns of um, globalization under neoliberalism, that men face un- and underemployment to an increasing extent. Women are joining the workforce but under situations that are systemically um, not promising. Um, So women do the vast majority of informal work, but then we also have to consider all these various angles of work, and the other marginalized populations are economically marginalized men. Poor men do a great deal of informal work. The urban underclass undertaking jobs that others don't want to do out of a survival or coping um, need. Migrants, again, so much about informalization is a real window on migration with all the issues that raises politically in regard to citizenship rights, claims, international laws. 
and then recent immigrants. If you think about migrant labor, you think about the EU and who's doing what kind of work here, that basically the majority of informal workers are those who are most vulnerable and economic, but also racially gendered uh, and national geopolitical location. So one of the key issues in my research is to try to take the advantage of this window that informalization affords and through it think about the social theory dilemma, if you will, impasse right now in regard to theorizing the intersection of hierarchies. How do we make sense of race, ethnicity, class or economic differentiations, sexuality, gender, geopolitical location, national differentiations. How do we think about those stratifications in some complex fashion that does justice to each, that recognize the different modalities operating in each, but enables us to sustain a coherent, critical orientation and analysis of the larger picture? So one way in which I attempt to do that is to identify feminization as devalorization. This was a topic in one of the other talks, so I'll just refer to it. That basically what all those groups share, it seems to me, is that the members of devalorized groups are identified with, associated with, um, specified as characteristics that are stereotypically feminine. Right? That they're lazy, that they're irrational, they can't don't have enough mental capacity to have the really fancy jobs, that they are um, out of control, that they're too sexual, that they are too much like children, and they're too spontaneous, don't know how to sustain a sense of order and certainty and predictability. So that feminization of all the members as a tendency of these groups is one thing that they all share. This doesn't explain everything about social structures or hierarchies. It just taps an important legitimating, naturalizing discourse. Right? As if people are understood to live, embody, experience, manifest undesirable qualities. Right? being unskilled, unable to do work on their own, un incapable of intellectual pursuit, right? untrustworthy, right? then they don't deserve to be paid more to have situations, positions of responsibility. And it's not so much a political issue any longer, but something that just makes sense. Right? So we don't have to question it. We don't have to um, be outraged at the kind of labor that we ask people to do, the kinds of persons we consider disposable right? and willing to um, um, be violent against in terms of the risks that they are expected to take in their job situation, right? that instead of that being an outrage where you think, oh, well, hey, they aren't capable of doing better, they don't deserve better, they really just not quite the, um, the don't deserve the same respect as those we consider elites. So analytically or empirically, those are the indicators that um, I think informalization helps us to see, becomes really obvious. Oh, we've got a problem here in terms of social reproduction, in terms of hierarchies. Analytically, informalization enables us to um, be really painfully cognizant of just how problematic our conventional boundaries are. Hmm? That the categories and especially the dichotomies we so often take for granted, 
are really disturbed and disrupted by taking informal activities seriously. I'll try to provide a few examples to make some embodied sense of that. Where do we draw the line between pleasure and pain when we are talking about informal activities like selling your infants okay, for international adoption or selling body parts because you feel that's the only way that you can generate income for yourself or your family's survival? Okay. What's the boundary between legal and illegal when people cross borders, as they do in the United States, people go to, to Canada or to Mexico. I'm not very far from Mexico, so this is one that's familiar to me. In order to buy legal drugs, the drugs aren't illegal. I mean, they go there to do that, but you can do that at home as well. Right? But you cross the border because their systems of medical care provision for a variety of reasons, Canada is quite different than Mexico, make it possible to purchase drugs that are very expensive within the U.S. economy because of our um, resistance to nationalized medicine. So is that legal or illegal? Are there any number of um, ways in which the legal-illegal boundary is completely blurred by informal activities? Then what about politics-economics, another dichotomy that's familiar? But what does it mean when politicians who ostensibly are elected, at least in many of the advanced industrialized countries, are elected and pass legislation that makes um, what were previously illicit practices, shady accounting procedures or actual uh, lack of regulation of the safety measures at a factory, etc., make what were previously understood to be illicit activities licit mm -hmm. because they've been persuaded by those who lobby them in the interest of the multinationals and other um, um, and bodies that they represent to pass legislation that favors them economically. So we get a cycle of, especially in the United States, of campaign finance that then basically becomes how our political laws and policies are established. What is the boundary between national and international when we have people migrating to another country to do work, basically in order to send money back to their original home country? So is that national or international? Are those, is that revenue generation? Is that job national or international? And primarily this mixing, this blurring of divisions, lines, um, distinctions between categories is clear in regard to we can no longer assume this, the separate objective and subjective especially in economic terms. Right? Both in terms of what people are willing to do for jobs to generate income because they feel obligated or have um, heady desires for consumption, right? but also in terms of what we desire, literally how are the preferences, the desires, the longings for particular commodities and services produced. So we need to recognize these in relation and not the kind of dichotomies, um, dichotomized categories that the biases I mentioned earlier have encouraged us to use. One of the particular insights from an analytical perspective is the need to rethink what we mean by work. 
and the political work done by assuming we can make the distinctions that have been conventional, but I'm arguing are no longer sustainable. It also, by studying informalization, reveals to us what's valorized. What do we really value? How is it possible that sex workers can be um, protected against the forced use um, or lack of um, condom use when you're a certain racial category but not a different racial category? that the vulnerability of different groups that really suggests, in a quite direct way, the disposability of bodies and who is disposable and how that tends to fall out in regard to the same familiar structural hierarchies that we have been um, dealing with, creating, and reproducing for some time. So again, one of the analytical aspects is the intersectionality, being able to rethink, you know, like what is it about the various workers who are engaged in informal labor that make their work so invisible and the risks that they take so invisible and the cost to them so invisible and the lack of compensation for the work that they do so invisible. And then there are also security issues, but I'll treat that under the political implications. So we know there are empirical implications, analytical ones, theoretical ones, how we consider knowledge production, et cetera, and there are just straightforward political ones. Most of even the orthodox economic literature recognizes that if we have inaccurate measurements of economic productivity, we can have misinformed policies. That's a big, big one for the liberal economists. They're worried about that. Um, another one is that We generally lack safety regulations when we back off of regulating and um, recording activities more generally, but free people up to do whatever. And I'll say as an aside, disciplinary practices, surveillance, um, keeping track of people, the cameras in, in London, it's always a double-edged sword, really, you know, when, the, when these things are done in service to ensuring that there's fairness and justice and an equitable distribution and people are following the rules. If you like the particular rules, then we think, well, that's very good. Hey? When it's done in service to intervening in people's private decisions in ways that we think, oh, that's going too far, you know, like I don't want that camera in my particular face at this particular moment, then, of course, we feel differently about the the surveillance or discipline. So it is always a complicated question. Um, The political implications are also undercutting the hard-won worker protections that people have invested a great deal of time, energy, and lives to secure. And there are both, obviously, psychological, socioeconomic, material consequences for the lack of protection that um, most workers are suffering. And then I return to, basically, the two key issues that I hope to have illuminated in some way, that the uneven distribution that is occasioned by neoliberal restructuring. I mean, it didn't invent uneven distribution or it didn't invent racism, et cetera, but has, I would argue, with a number of others, exacerbated that tendency and that discrepancy between the um, elites and the 
the majority of the world's people, mm-hmm. that those uneven distribution of work opportunities uh, is also an uneven distribution of power and empowerment, that the hierarchies that we see in the past are continuing, being exacerbated in a number of ways, mm-hmm. and that one of the things we have to pay attention to is when people are screwed over, uh, they are aware of it and they resent it. And these resentments, depending on the particular situation, often translate into conflict. And that if there's one thing that international relations scholars face today, it's the dilemma of what to do about the abundance of conflict and its most egregious violence um, on the planet today. And one aspect, not all of it, but one aspect of it is coming to terms with the conflicts and resentments that are generated through the exacerbation of these hierarchies. Informalization is an interesting window on those particular dynamics. And then finally, the key thing, I think the thing that's most obvious from studying informalization through a critical lens, eh, is the crisis of social reproduction. We simply can't keep expecting people, vulnerable people, the poorest people, and, and especially women who are sustaining households, to keep doing it. Eh? It's not physically survivable. To work at that level, to sustain one's own well-being and the well-being of other persons with such reduced resources. This has implications for not just the sustenance of particular households or families, but entire societies. And certainly has implications as well for global environmental issues. The whole notion that we've got to just keep growing, growing, growing um, when that's not actually working is another um, thread of these um, dilemmas that I'm not going to try to tackle this evening. So finally then, what have we learned from um, this um, scattershot approach or this uh, uh, summary outline of informalization and what is to be done? And I return again to organizing these in regard to empirical, analytical, and political ways of thinking about it. Empirically, what is, I think, most clearly revealed is the crisis of social reproduction that affects all of us. This is not sustainable. It's not sustainable in terms of households. And if you think about some of the developments perhaps in your own households, other people you know, especially in terms of people moving around the planet in search of better options. So households are struggling coping, trying to survive. And there are also the issue of structural hierarchies that I would argue is not sustainable. We can't just keep um, immiserating a high percentage of the population of the planet and expect it not to have some very um, disruptive consequences. What then do we do? What's the answer to that particular observation? Uh, Certainly we have to begin to take household income-generating strategies and the politics of households seriously. It's been a tendency in um, Western thought, knowledge production, etc., to just assume that what happens in the household and the family or the things that women do can't possibly be a driving impetus for world politics. And one of the things that a study of informalization suggests is how crucially significant household activities, how people organize their lives, how they think about negotiating with the system for jobs, for income generation, for getting their kids ahead in school, or for keeping this one home while somebody else does something 
for accumulation strategies, deciding what they're going to consume, deciding how they're going to be trained, deciding what they think matters are aspects of global politics, state-making, violence, militarism that are not separate from these forms of informalization. Analytically, what we've learned is there is a crisis, I would argue, in social theory as the categories that we have taken for granted and tend to reproduce are inadequate for the conditions that we confront. We can't make good um, policies and we can't make good decisions. We certainly can't address some of the problems of our age if we don't think about it in a manner that is more productive, if you will, more adequate or even accurate, uh, and that seeing the elephant in the room is a beginning uh, starting point for better analysis, at least more informed ones. Hmm? We have failed in general to acknowledge the force of subjective factors. I think there's a, it's part of the resistance to posterior discursive or cultural analyses. I, seeing that as somehow symbolic and not deeply implicated in what the actual material effects are. But uh, consumption is, is always a useful window for uh, insisting that we also try to think about why do we want that? Why are people so determined to have stuff or to um, take the risk that they might to maintain a family situation? Politically, I would suggest that the most obvious implication is there's a crisis of neoliberal ideology. One thing informalization really lays bare is that capitalism is not inevitable and that capitalist relations are not even the majority of those relations that we're engaged in when we do work or even just individual everyday survival. The, that there is no alternative, the Tina mantra that neoliberal and capitalist advocates keep reiterating, you know, like, well, you have to either get on that bandwagon or it will leave you behind or run over you, is simply a misrepresentation. It's misleading in regard to the accurate reality of what's going on on the planet, which is much more informal activities outside of capital relations. It's not to say capitalism isn't powerful and important. It's to say it's to misconstrue it if we actually fall into the trap they want us to fall into of thinking like, there isn't anything we can do. It's so overwhelming. It's a total system. We're all engaged in it, and it's already happening, so there isn't any escape from it. There's no alternative. People are living alternatives to it all the time. And then there are the repressive, I would argue, dynamics of accepting capitalism as a social logic. Right? That part of neoliberal restructuring is to generate or to shift power from public uh, governmental systems that are supposed to be about collective interests. I am providing public goods. How well they do or do not do that obviously varies. But at least that the government is supposed to be about service to its collective citizens or um, constituents. Market-based principles are about making a profit. It's not, they, don't, they don't pretend 
to have the collective interest at heart. They are obligated to their shareholders to have profit-seeking as their first and primary objective, and doing so leaves too much out of the picture. We've seen already that capitalist development has commodified aspects of our intimate, personal lives in ways that I'm not quite sure how we dig ourselves out of the particular narratives and dilemmas of selling body parts in order to um, gain some income. The extraordinary trafficking in people on the planet with all of its immiserations. That capitalism is a social logic is clearly, or I believe, unsustainable. It doesn't mean that markets don't have a purpose, that markets can't do certain things that other institutions may not be able to, but capitalism with its um, insistence on profit-seeking, I would hope, is being exposed as something the planet can't afford, and certainly the majority of the planet already is suffering under its auspices. So what do we do there? We take critiques of capitalism seriously and, and resist this there-is-no-alternative mantra. Mm-hmm. There are many critiques of capitalism available. Hi. There are other progressive movements. It would seem to me we have to initially engage in reform activities, a double vision that we can't fix it all. is a very long-term project to reshape thinking about capitalism, growth, what matters, who matters, Those are very big questions that um, um, will take a long time to redirect. I do think that the sooner we get started, the better. And the sooner we get started examining the elephant in the room that's in formalization, um, the better equipped, I believe, we will be to make some difference in a more appropriate, hopefully a more equitable and just direction on a planet that will be a real drag to see disappear. (laughs) And that's what I have to say. Thank you. 
privatization is not what capitalism wants because it's all that that reserve on human labor, if you increase the pressure on wages, etc. So what it doesn't really want complete proletarianization, and that's not the objective. So in any event, the general expectation was for industrialization, and that that would invariably um, be the path that the rest would take in addition to the rest. Um, and that it was something that would involve increasingly um, fewer informal activities, especially low economic growth in nature. Yeah, I've got two, two questions. The first is really a historical one, and I want to ask how much of these changed in terms of the relationship between capitalism and informalization? I take it theoretically there's an expectation that informalization would reduce and formal capitalist relations would take over more, but has there actually been a major shift in that respect, or are we actually seeing a continuation of what was always a very deep dependence of capitalist social relations on informalization of various kinds? So that's the first question. The second is about the kind of what we do or what is to be done. And I wonder about the extent to which you see the erosion of the capacity of states to organize welfare, to act as public forums, to deal with questions of equity, safety regulation, and so on, whether you see that as part of the problem, and therefore in some ways you might be calling for a kind of you know, return of the state, as some extent, or whether you see it in other sorts of terms, in terms of what might be done. In regard to the first, um, in part because informalization is so difficult to track, there's surprisingly little historical research especially, but those who have undertaken that work, as well as I've been able to um, uncover their work, argue and primarily out of a more world systems informed perspective, that informalization is cyclical. That if we understand um, economic um, and historical processes as variations of accumulation cycles, so then, then they argue about which, which, the length of which cycles, whether they're quantity cycles, licentiary or other linear, yes. Um, but that it is cyclical in the sense that there, the accumulation in regard to liquidity, financial when, um, when the technology has been well developed to such an extent that they want to, to increase liquidity and shift to those kinds of investments which would seem to be a destruction. Um, then informalization increases because those with investment capabilities are backing out of um, real production factors of particular investments depending on the cycle line. And then they turn to a variety of ways to squeeze profit. And an informal extension is one of them. So it's cyclical, it's not new, it's just in a new, it's in a particular poison really phase, if you will. But that's complicated by all the debates about how viable the long cycle literature is and what you subscribe to the system wants to I find it compelling that in general, Centralization and, and, and decentralization tend to fluctuate. Decentralization favors um, informalization. And I should say, there are some good things about 
initial feel. And some people, especially those at the top, can take advantage of it and prosper. Some people, especially the low economists, see it positively as that green realm of entrepreneurial activities. And this is good, and we should encourage informal activities in the developing world and in the industrialized countries because people's imaginations and creative impulses, you know, life will get us to the moon. I mean, that's the place we're going with it. Um, and there's no doubt some truth to that, but not sufficiently to overwhelm um, what I think with a larger, larger pattern. The second part of the road has become very interesting. Some of you may know, but you actually mentioned one of the, one of the books, my other work, that's very much a critique of the state, period, full out as disciplinary power that was in some ways illegitimate, that was masculine, patriarchal, and typically racist, and class-based, etc. So the state was uh, an institution to be criticized from a variety of perspectives. And then, with um, developments in the local economy and other um, things, I find myself recognizing that compared to market fundamentalism, the state is one of our own safeguards. It's kind of a protector, protected dilemma. Protection is never an equal relationship. Sometimes it's necessary. When it's which, um, well, it's always unequal, but it's sometimes desirable. Um, it does seem that if the, if the I'm always saying in lectures, you know, compared to what? If we are comparing market fundamentalism to some form of state order uh, and this, we hope for some progressive kind of state that actually does have citizen interests at stake and that is their, their um, primary objective, then the, the state um, is better and can actually do things that markets both of are interested in doing and are unlikely to be able to do like produce public, public goods. It's particularly interesting with your question on regard to the next the next topic of theories is about conflicts and civil conflicts and changes in how we are engaging in war and how informal economies especially operate with conditions and I will argue that there are coping combat and criminal economies and the economic aspects of some informal black market activities displace the military and ideological objectives and ways that really um, make them despair of um, digging our way out of those particular debts as well. And it's particularly that's way we read states in our state we don't have the power to say, okay, we're going to stop this monthly We're not going to permit the wholesale um, um, uh, exploitation of these natural resources or whatever on behalf of particular etc. If the state can't propose that kind of basic civil order, then it's open, especially in the presence of extraordinary expansion of weaponry. Very messy weaponry, the religious headlines of the ones who probably do the same thing, but it's no longer the case. And so the implications of so many different groups having such devastating access to such devastating power just alters the dynamics of the law of options on profit without states. It's actually at this point, who is probably just a 
So yes, we were in state power. Um, I would also go back to say the states gave it away, powerful states, went for the they have the advocates and the points of neoliberal um, restructuring and it was fighting some of them that they asked in the variety of ways, but it was not because states were weak, but for the most part, they endorsed that they understood to be the policies that would favor strong states.
it's turned out to be very. But I think that the ideology of there is no alternative operates very effectively across a variety of groups and populations. And that is just one part of the work that I do is to um, provide some empirical evidence to the life. It's not true. You don't have to stay locked in that. It's like um, trying to open the box on an assumption that it's considered it's natural. You know, like that it's just, um, you know, that we always have poor among us. Right? Or that people respond always with suspicion and reaction to difference. Right? Just a really remarkably embedded setting of a naturalized, normalized conception that is inaccurate. Right? And to point out that it's inaccurate to doesn't stop people thinking that, but it's hopefully a disruption of the, the, the rolling over, the same, you know, the depletion of resistance because we really don't think there's any alternative, that this really is what's going on, that capitalism really is a specialistic system that we're embedded in. So to refer to informalization, really just a, a particular argument about the very fact that most of the planet is engaged in activities outside of capital relations, partly because of capitalism's own development and neoliberal destruction, etc., is to disrupt the givenness of China, that there is no alternative and it's not a very The, um, the entire thing about informalization, and some people promote informal activities to get outside of the system that they find oppressive and too restraining. And this is um, uh, you know, a positive as far as I'm concerned in the sense that the system typically isn't engaged primarily in securing the collective interests, engaging in democratic processes that will identify what the collective interests might be.
on identity characteristics, and then this, the other kind of differences, spatial differences or ubiquities linked to uneven development and how, how you actually theorize the ways in which those intersectionalities um, take place. Because um, it seems to me that there could well be different processes involved in terms of those which are structuring inequality uh, on a global scale and those which are structuring or influencing the gender of those inequalities. And therefore, rather than depicting on informalization as the kind of object of analysis, I would want to, to think in terms of how one thinks about uh, the, the different the, the ways in which the um, inequalities are being shaped in contemporary context. And I, I think the seizing on the kind of empirical object in a way, it's not clear what kind of theorizing on, on the empirical objects such as the formalization of well, you know, specific kind of process. What does that mean in terms of the ways in which you're going to address that issue theoretically in terms of exploring the structural hierarchies that you're interested in?
that's really um, underlies or structures the, the orientation, the objectives, some of the orientation I make that might be um, unnecessary. Thank you. 
attending to the voices and the experiences in a more bottom-up view, not to the exclusion of uh, a top-down vision, but actually taking seriously what's excluded and what kind of um, political work is achieved by reference to particular categories and characterizations as in skills. Why do we understand some work is unskilled, even though it engages very important production as in child care, um, and truck drivers can be paid considerably more than more than five times what child care providers are paid in the United States. So methodologies that would attempt to marginalize voices, that would take seriously subjective factors that are going into the kinds of studies that predominate in economics, especially in that is addresses or doesn't address in modernization. Um, so I would propose a more methods that are informed by the structuralist orientations, relational approach to categories and their construction, recognizing the politics of language, um, and recognizing the very considerable research and studies undertaken by feminists, post-colonial scholars, those who have been critical of capitalism for a long time, um, and enabling us to see what's actually happening, both in the local, and I'm very much interested in what's happening in the global. Um, I'm not actually persuaded by the um, preference for the specific local studies at the expense of more macro studies. I'm still enough of a populist rationalist to appreciate larger uh, narratives, etc. Um, I don't know that that adequately responds. I'm, I'm going to try to respond to what the subject might inform or not my approach. Um, gender women's groups and their agency. Again, I would, Jim, return to the statement to claim the defense and the position that is compared to what? That is like the question of the feminization of employment and whether this is good or bad for women and the debates that go on in economic development with regard to um, microfinance. That there are very significant issues to be addressed and that it's complicated. What can we, what's the best we can do given the structural conditions within which we are doing things? Um, so that's one thing and, and suggests the um, appropriateness of more performance activities and recognizing that there is agency for women secure employment, there are agency, there's agency in women's participation in the and whatnot, there's agency for women's kitchens and manage to collectively sustain community. The questions I'm interested in is why is this necessary? How do we understand the larger picture that made it necessary for women who are already switched to max to be the persons putting in extra hours in a collective soup kitchen in order to sustain communities? So it's it's um, it's not to deny the others so much as they my attention is you know when I started talking about doing blinders, I have blinders. I, you know, yes, I have an action fixed on that, right? And my mind show what's going on if you look through the most large ones, the populations that are in the population. 
their relationship to institutional structural dynamics like larger trends, right? How power operates within those. So, and I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand what um, what you were asking, and so that was a little bit confusing. But large part of the unreported economy is capital intensive. Uh, makes a lot of money. Some of it adds to the formal uh, economy in a positive way, and some of it destroys it by the fake pharmaceutical business, which probably accounts for about half the pharmaceuticals and agriculture estimated. Now, on the other hand, there's other parts of the unreported economy, like uh, good friends, the Polish workers who come over here and work. Those who work without paying taxes, cash only, obviously actually do positively produce value goods and services. And you really can't find all the other Well, I've already indicated that they, they can't, they shouldn't all be lumped together for the purposes of some questions of inquiry, and that they're, um, what I'm trying to do in regard to distinguishing all that falls out of market-based capitalist relations um, takes that risk and, and says I'm going to run with it for these particular Before we thank Spike, two uh, announcements. First, to give her an advert for the lecture in two weeks' time, which Spike's already given during the presentation, so that's good. It's the uh, same time, uh, uh, two, two Mondays. It's actually going to be in the East next time. The second thing is to invite everybody to a reception, which is going to take place now immediately in the senior corner. Um, before Spike, and then people will come. And thirdly, to invite you to thank her.